Hello, and welcome back to Broken Oars Summer Shorts, Episode 3. Back in Episode 1, I asked which English general on a campaign had sighed and said, Oh, I could do with some trollop. And one of his staff officers said, Well, I'll see what's around the camp, sir. Not realising that he meant he wanted to curl up with one of Anthony Trollope's novels rather than a saucy wench. The general in question was Bob Napier, and it was during the Abyssinia campaign. Thank you everyone who wrote in, and well done to the people who got it right. I will send you a small present. So, we've been talking about poets and poetry. We've been talking about Thomas Hardy, social climber, Dorset native, fantastic novelist, interesting poet, absolute shagbag. In episode two, we talked about A.E. Houseman, and we talked about how this buttoned-up classicist, because he was so buttoned-up, completely invented our idea of what England should be, all because he was pining for the unrequited passion he had for a male undergraduate. Now, there are many other poets that we could skip ahead to, and we will at some point, but I want to introduce something slightly different. I want to talk about a man called Brian and how he invented the guitar hero. So, episode three of the Broken Oars Summer Shorts podcast series is entitled Enter Brian. That's not necessarily an invitation, by the way. Anyway, here's the pitch and the truth. The northeast of England, where I'm from, where I currently live, invented the guitar hero as we know it. Then, as with the steam engine, the railway, electricity, hydraulic engineering, shipbuilding, the modern production of steel and coal, progressive football, and most of the modern world, less self-effacing regions and people took all the credit for it and have been dining out on it ever since. Farewell, dour South Yorkshire parochialism. Do one, Mancunian chippiness. Go back to the sound of the bow bells, London. Viz nailed you first time out. Big Vern and his shotgun is coming for you. You're all a footnote to Tyneside. I'm here all week. Tip your waitresses. Try the veal. It's a dead baby animal. The sound you've just heard in the background was me dropping a mic and claiming one for the northeast. However outlandish it sounds, though, it is true. The northeast invented the guitar hero, and it's all down to the efforts of a Geordie called Brian. Without Brian, there would have been no Clapton is God graffiti on London walls in the 1960s. There would have been no lauding of the laudable Peter Green, no eulogies to the stylings of Jeff Beck. There would have been no shrines across North America in the 1970s and beyond to Jimmy Page, a low-slung Les Paul and the recycling of old blues riffs as original material. Yes, I'm talking about Led Zeppelin and their back catalogue. And there would have been no Eddie Van Halen, no Frankenstrat, no eruption. No matter how you feel about the instrument, whether you are into guitar-based music or not, you cannot actually say anything about Eddie Van Halen other than he was a giant of the instrument, regardless of how you feel about rock music. However, Enter Brian is not the beginning of some sub-Monty Python routine. He's not a guitar hero, he's a very naughty boy. Anyone who quotes comedy has no sense of humour. That is a fact as is the reality that you should stay well away from such people unless your life has reached such a sad nadir that you really, really, really want to hear someone reciting a sketch you already know 
to you word by word in a public place before expecting you to then laugh with them. I'm not thinking necessarily of John Hanna's performance in Sliding Doors after the whole rowing sequence which we will skip and gloss lightly over on the ground that life is too short to shake our heads and sigh about it. However, I'm bringing attention to the above because I think that Brian, through no fault of his own, is the cause of the deep fracture that exists in guitar culture where the guitar is positioned as wand and its practitioners as almighty sorcerers that is the mythologized cultural narrative of the guitar hero and the reality of the instrument in the contemporary moment. That it's there for people to make music on. Now that might sound like an obvious point, but unless we explore how the former rather than the latter became the dominant cultural trope about what the guitar is and does, the instrument will remain stuck in the constant repetition of its past glories that currently defines it. And I know that I like to joke on Broken Oars podcast and I like to play the Northern Monkey to Lewin's oppressive Southern Overlord, but I care too deeply about music and the instrument and what it can do to let that happen. So, let me introduce Brian. Brian was born in Newcastle upon Tyne in 1941, a part of the world where to this day the idea that all men are lads, all women are lasses, all the lads are called Jackie, and so too are most of the lasses, and we're all teak tough, canny Geordies who endlessly kick cases around on the steep cobble streets that run down to the Tyne, the Tyne, the Mucky Tyne, the queen of all the rivers, while waiting to be called for war tea of Stotty and peace pudding, persists beneath the surface of the steel and glass that now adorn the city centre. Brian's given name was Brian Rankin, which is a solid enough British name for a solid enough time in British history. It's a solid enough Geordie name for a solid enough time in Geordie history too, but it's not one that rang to the new sounds that were beginning, as the cultural commentators would have it, to sweep across the country as he was growing up in the 1950s. That was three chords played with a beat that is the magic of rock and roll. These were the sounds that prompted Brian, young Brian, young Brian Rankin, to swap his banjo for a guitar. And these were the sounds that prompted Brian to change his name. Why? because Brian doesn't sound very American. The period after the Second World War was the point where America took over from Britain as the world's dominant player and culture. Now, reams have been written about it, so I won't add to this beyond noting that America has always been a country of inherent contradictions and tensions. It was then, as it is now, a place that simultaneously celebrates the modern and the old. It is a place of cool new sounds and cool new types of people, and roots and archetypes. Brian's America, brought to him on the big screen and through the airwaves, was a place of cowboys and Indians on the plains and skyscrapers and bright city lights, of settlers and immigrants. Brian's America was big band song and dance numbers in Technicolor and the black and white of mobsters and gangsters in the Prohibition era and the frontier settlers. And all of these things were happening at the same time. Brian's America was the Second World War heroics in Europe and on the sands of Iwo Jima, even as it was still coming to terms with its own civil war, ongoing segregation and racial injustice. It was the green Kentucky hills, the breadbasket, Arizona deserts, Texas plains, Montana big skies, southern swamps and northern wildernesses. Brian's America was simultaneously ragtime, gin joints, jazz, swing, big band, dance hall and rock and roll, rockabilly, skiffle, folk, bluegrass and Appalachia. But what it boils down to was this. After the Second World War, as the world entered the 1950s, America was where it was at. 
America was where the real I am came from in terms of music, which is why Brian, young Brian, Brian Rankin from Geordieland, changed his name to Hank. Hank is a very American name. Hank Marvin, even more so. Brian Rankin from Newcastle became Hank Marvin, and as Hank Marvin, he went on to invent the Guitar Hero. Now, I can imagine what you're thinking. Hank Marvin, specky bloke, wasn't he a Jehovah's Witness? Didn't he play with Cliff Richard? And you're saying he was the first Guitar Hero? Yes, I am. Hard though it might be to believe, without Brian, from Newcastle, let us not forget, there is no holy trinity of the 1960s British blues invasion and assorted lesser deities. Without them, without him, there are no guitar heroes of the 1960s and 1970s, and there are no guitar anti-heroes in the punk movement of the late 1970s. Without Brian, Hank from Newcastle, there's no Eddie, there's no tapping, there's no dive bombs, there are no power squats, no pointy headstocks, and none of the 80s and 90s generation of players. Without Brian from Newcastle, there's no obsession with gear and gizmos and specs and licks and tricks. And by specs, I don't mean the sort that Brian used to wear. I mean specs as in specifications. What sort of guitar is it? What is it made of? What is the tone wood? What is the fingerboard made of? What is the nut made of? What sort of pickups does it have? That kind of thing. Without Brian, there are none of these things. And so it logically follows that without Brian from Newcastle, and those who took their cue from him, and those who took their cue from those who took their cue from him, the guitar wouldn't be stuck in the cultural cul-de-sac that it currently occupies, a heritage hobby for weekend reenactors rather than being a vital part of the contemporary musical landscape. Here's why. Pre-Brian, the guitar was part of the band, part of the collective, part of the overall machinery of making music. It might step out occasionally to take a break, but then so did everybody else. The cornet player would occasionally get a break, the clarinet player would get a break, the saxophonist would get a break, and most of the girls. Post-Brian, however, the guitar had become a solo instrument. Now, taking solos on instruments has been part of every musical tradition. Exceptional soloists have always been celebrated. But Paganini didn't start calling himself a violin hero. Beethoven didn't start calling himself a piano hero after writing The Caprices or Another Sonata, and nor did they start thinking of their instruments as weapons or swords or mystical objects either. No, typically it took guitarists, the single scholars of the musical world, to start calling themselves guitar heroes and to cast their equipment in quasi-magical and heroic terms. And it was Brian, Brian Rankin, dear old Brian from Newcastle, calling himself Hank, or Hank Marvin, who was the first guitar hero of the boys who would go on to become guitar heroes themselves. Here's how it happened. Brian, born in Newcastle, banjo player, switches to guitar and skiffle. Calls himself Hank Marvin, and he and his friend Bruce Cripps, now renamed as Bruce Welsh, head to London in search of a start in the music business. Now, now, it's a sign of both the world as a more trusting and open place, and the disengagement between the post-war generation and their parents, that their parents didn't try and stop them. Brian and Bruce were grammar school boys, which meant that for the first time in British history, they had the chance to be more than their parents had been, via newly opened and accessible pathways in further and higher education. And yet both rejected this opportunity in favour of striking out for the one in a million chance that is material success in music, 
despite knowing nothing about the business, having no inns and no patronage, all of which were as important then as they are now. After nearly starving to death down in London, however, their ship came in. That ship with a P, for those of you who think that I have a strong accent. Hank and Bruce found themselves becoming part of the backing band for a boy called Harry. Harry Webb, who as Britain's answer to Elvis, changed his name to the much more brooding and rugged Cliff. Cliff Richard. Now, it says a lot about the difference between Britain and America as cultural forces that America's Elvis was a dirt-poor, white-trash, shotgun-shack hick who embodied all of the societal, musical and racial contradictions and tensions of the American South in a once-in-a-generation package of voice, sex appeal and material without really knowing how he did it, while Britain's version was a born-again Christian on the make whose every move, note and spontaneous outburst was pre-rehearsed. Nevertheless, suitably packaged and sold, Cliff was a hit, and as with Elvis, attention began to spill over to his backing band, The Shadows, Shadows containing Bruce and Brian. Now, the music business has always been a business, despite all of the pretensions about art and artistry, and there was a commercial opportunity to be had in the Shadows trading on their success with Cliff by recording under their own name. So they did, recording instrumentals for the same company that pushed Cliff's music. And that's the point where the split between the guitar as the part of the ensemble and the guitar as solo instrument and guitarist as musicians and guitarist as guitar heroes begins to occur. Here's how and why. Now, I'm sure I'm not the first person to point out that guitarists are like golfers. No, not in the sense that they tend to be middle-aged men who do a pointless thing with highly specialized equipment with other men on a Sunday afternoon. Although yes, that is also true. Guitarists are like golfers in as much as they, we, all believe that we're only one more piece of kit away from achieving perfection. Like golfers, we all think that we're only one more pedal, one more amp, one more guitar, one more piece of kit away from middling it, splitting the fairway, getting on the green and hauling out. Rather than point out that we'd all stand much more chance of doing that and being better players if, you know, we just put the hours in, manufacturers tend to prey on this tendency in both tribes. Look at the advertising language around golf clubs and around guitars. Can't find the fairway? We've changed how drivers are built so you can change how you play your game. The tee box is yours. Swing away with our new, insert macho name here, number two. We've pushed past the limits of titanium, producing a more forgiving head that gives you more forgiveness. Compare this with guitar blow. Searching for the sound in your head? With period-accurate bodies, necks and hardware, and meticulously voiced, yes-specific pickups, our American Heritage, American Vintage, American Original, American Reissue, whatever series, captures the revolutionary designs that altered the course of popular music to get... Although one is selling the future in terms of golf, the other is selling the past in terms of guitars and how they're packaged and sold, the language is exactly the same. The reality is if we really wanted to hit a 300 yard drive, backspin our wedge approaches to within a foot of the pin and hit the back of the cup, we'd go to the range of the short course and hit the ball 10,000 times. And if we really wanted to master the guitar, we'd take whatever we were playing and we'd put time into it. We'd play it. Because there really is no high road to the muses. There's a poetry reference for you. Anyone who tells me which poet that comes from wins a prize next week. But none of us wants to hear that. None of us wants to hear that if we put the time in, we'll get better. We want the secret. We want the trick. We want the hack. As we talked about in our conversation with Pete Holmes, 
We want the silver bullet. Why? Because. Because we don't believe it when we're told it's all in the fingers. Even though Eddie Van Halen always sounded like Eddie Van Halen, no matter what guitar he used. Even though Hendrix always sounded like Hendrix, no matter what he was playing. It's all in the fingers. The greats are telling you it's all in the fingers, but the manufacturers are telling you it's all in the kit. And we want the reward, not the journey to the reward. We don't understand that the journey itself is a part of the reward. And it's also because we don't really want to find our own voice. After all, that's a hard, high, lonely road to walk with a good chance there'll be no recognition or approbation waiting for us at the end of the path. Why bother doing that when we know we can just get props for successfully aping someone who sounds like someone who sounds like someone who sounds like someone who sounds like someone who actually did do the miles and came up with some decent licks and some decent music. Guitarists are like golfers in another way as well. We believe that if we have the kit that our heroes have, we'll perform like them. We know that this isn't true. We've been told it's in the hands a million times. But that doesn't stop us thinking, oh, if only I had the new tailor-made wedge VOS spec Les Paul Strymer and Cloudburst pedal, that's how X or Y or Z gets that control or their approach on that sound on this and that and the other. And to be fair to Brian from Newcastle, or as we're now calling him, Hank with spectacles, he was no different. Brian had grown up on Buddy Holly and the Chirping Crickets, which is still, still, STILL the template of what you can do with a guitar, three chords, some friends and a garage. What was on the cover of the Chirping Crickets album? Buddy's Fender Stratocaster. Nowadays, like the Les Paul, the Stratocaster is sold on what it was. It's now a heritage instrument where people pay top dollar to get an instrument made exactly as it was in the 1950s and early 1960s, down to the weight, the wiring, the capacitors and the pickups. This is complete idiocy. You don't find an EMDM artist telling their record company that unless they're provided with a Bakelite radio with original valves and static hiss, they'll walk off their latest album. It's only guitarists that are stuck in the time walk that what's cool and hip and current and trendy is something that their grandparents thought was cool and hip and current and trendy 70 years ago. Because the guitar then was cool and it was hip and it was current. In the 1950s, the Fender Stratocaster looked like it had come down from another planet. It was a song of sleek, sensual, futuristic design. It looked like a rocket ship, like a jet aircraft, like a supercar. It had to be ordered from California, the land of dreams. It took months to arrive and it cost £120 when it did, which is what the average working man then earned for three months of work. And when Brian, we're now calling him Hank, when his guitar did arrive, when his Stratocaster arrived, it was literally the first one ever to arrive in Britain. Hank Marvin, Brian, in fact, had the first Fender Stratocaster in Europe. Now, when they gigged, people would come to see the band, which is important. People previously went to dance to bands. They still went to dance, but increasingly they went to look and they went to watch. Girls would come to look and scream at Cliff which is a little bit like standing in front of a lump of concrete and screaming that you find it sexually attractive for all the attention that he paid to them. They would also come and scream at Hank because Hank was now the guitar player in the shadows. For a deeply religious boy from Newcastle brought up on wartime values, that must have been slightly disconcerting for him too. 
But when people went to see the band, when they went to look at the band and watch the band, a certain type of boy would notice that girls were screaming for a fairly ordinary Geordie boy because that fairly ordinary Geordie boy had been transformed into a figure of cool, a figure of appeal, simply because he was playing the most modern cool and hip instrument in music, the electric guitar. And they'd want to be that person, making that sound, getting that attention. Just like that, a generation of boys who would never, ever, ever be within touching distance of ever being cool, suddenly found that they could be. All they needed was a guitar. A friend of mine who was in London's best unsigned band three years in a row back when that meant something, which was some time after Britpop and before Razorlight, once said about his lead singer, if the audience loves him as much as he loves himself, we're all going to end up millionaires. That the audience did, but the record company didn't, didn't change the essential truth of that statement. Lead singers, fundamentally, are narcissists. They are clinical narcissists. No one who is secure in themselves and their identity stands up on stage every night and demands that a room, a club, a theatre or a stadium full of people adore them night after night after night if they aren't. Lead guitarists, however, are complete spods. Lead guitarists tend to be quite serious young men who aren't very good with girls, who lose themselves in their obsessions with equipment and specs and kit and gear because it fulfills a deep, profound inner nerdiness. A deep, profound inner nerdiness that is soothed by tinkering with equipment and specs and kit and gear. A deep, profound inner nerdiness that will never ever go away no matter how many girls their obsession brings them. Now, just as there is no difference between the language of marketing golf clubs and the language of marketing guitars, there is no difference between guitar culture's language of licks and runs and brands and gear and specs and the language of train spotting or stamp collecting. Like English literature as a form, it is not a living language that is adding to the culture. It's a game of top trumps where you win by knowing or having what the other person doesn't. A stamp, a rare steam engine, a lick the other person doesn't know, an obscure reference, a piece of kit that the other person would really like but hasn't bought yet. When Brian unleashed his sound through his equipment, all of those people, all of those people who had that bent, who had that psychological tick in them, found a home. If you have that equipment and you can make that sound or something like it, you can be on stage and you can be someone. Now, if you don't believe that lead guitarists are spods, and you might not because they desperately try to rewrite their narrative over the course of time, just look at the names of the people who came after Brian or Hank. Eric Clapton, Jeffrey Beck, Jeff Beck, Keith Richards, Peter Green, Peter Townsend, George Harrison, James Page. These are not the names of children whose parents are expecting them to conquer the world and reshape the cultural landscape. There are no storms or thaws or jaguars here. These are the names of kids whose parents are expecting to go on to comfortable jobs in the civil service. It's no wonder that Keith Richards rebranded himself as Keith and took a ton of heroin just as soon as he could. Anything to blot out the deeply known and deeply understood reality that he wasn't cool and never would be. He was just a spotty dork from Dartford with an unhealthy interest in old blues records who also had a guitar. 
For boys who grew up on model railways and airfix kits, on goodies and baddies, Tommies and Nazis, on cowboys and Indians, the guitar was the next thing after a Colt 45 cap gun and a Hornby set. The cap gun allowed you to be a cowboy in your dreams, while a tennis racket and then a guitar allowed you to be a Brian or a Hank in your bedroom. As boyhood heroes change from figures on screens to musicians, so too the focus on the equipment needed to act out the fantasy changed. This reached its zenith when Hank and the boys released Apache. Now, I've never been present when an Apache warrior band have been on the warpath or been preparing for battle, but I'm guessing that Apache, the instrumental, sounds nothing like an Apache warrior band on the eve of battle or on the warpath, because Apache warrior bands on the eve of battle on, on the warpath didn't have guitars and drum kits. But the song, if you go and stick it on on YouTube now and listen to it, has endured to this day because it was never rooted in the reality, only in the fantasy, the celluloid idea of what cowboys and Indians looked like. And in its fantasy, it was and remains fantastic. For people brought up on the golden age of Hollywood, Saturday morning cartoons, the magic of the airwaves and bang bang you're dead, it must have sounded incredibly exotic and exciting. And Ennio Morricone's Spaghetti Western theme, before Ennio Morricone's Spaghetti Western themes, entered the cultural narrative. And it was all played on the most modern, cutting-edge instruments available. Gotta keep reiterating that. Back then, the Fender Stratocaster and a valve amp was the cutting edge of what you could make. The song itself was a smash. Every boy who had previously dabbled in modern train sets wanted to be in a band. And in the guitar, they found a way they could be in one without needing to overcome their inherent spottishness. They could hide behind the guitar because the guitar was now cool. And also, being in a band gives boys a gang to belong to. Like everyone else, boys like to belong. And gangs give that alongside all of the issues that later become the hallmark of bands making and breaking up. There's always a charismatic leader, usually the singer. There's always an ambitious deputy jockeying for the top spot usually the lead guitarist. There's always the butt of the jokes, the keyboard player or the bassist, and there's always the meathead muscle, usually the drummer. As in all gangs, there are initiations and rituals. There are declarations of loyalty, brotherhood, and being together forever. And as in all gangs, when the police or success come round, it all fractures like cheap pottery in an earthquake, as one for all and all for one becomes every man for themselves, faster than those men can actually blink. It was girls who drove the first wave of pop music. Girls screamed at Elvis without realising why they were screaming at him. Elvis, without knowing how or why, or what he was doing, or what he was channelling, awakened things in girls precisely as things were awakening within them. This was happenstance and circumstance colliding, and it created the big bang mix of music, youth and excitement which everything since, every decade since, has been an echo of. It was boys, however, and their obsession with equipment and kit that drove the second wave. A wave that crested and broke with the British Blues invasion, when serious young men armed with equipment made by other serious young men in sheds, successfully sold a decades-old American music form back to America. I've talked elsewhere about how musicians only get to be serious artists if they've first been commercially successful pop figures first. The Beatles and the Stones were both single-based boys band before they became rock stars, and their enduring success is not based on their cultural commentary or relevance, but a commercial success driven by the fact that they, once upon a time, wrote catchy tunes that you could dance to, and more importantly, that girls liked. Girls are out in the world making things happen while boys are still labouring under the impression that pulling a girl's pigtails 
and running away is the best way of telling a girl that you like her. It was boys who followed girls into the pop arena because boys noticed that girls liked pop musicians. With that, and with the invention of the guitar hero and the importance of equipment, however, comes the age of bands for boys. The Shadows, no matter how deeply uncool they became later in the 60s, were a boys band. Just as punk had to hate Pink Floyd to be relevant, the Yardbirds and the Bluesbreakers and the Deep Zeppelins and the Lead Purples had to hate the Shadows when their moments in the sun came because it's the easiest way to appear new and cool. You do it by standing in opposition to what went before. But scratch the surface and everyone, from Eric to Mark, admit that Hank and his guitar was what first hooked them. Without Hank and the Shadows, none of what happened next would have happened. Because as well as giving them a way into the music, Hank and the Shadows gave something for boys to get obsessive about. Boys like being obsessive about stuff. It's easier than dealing with real life. That's why grown men used to talk about mileage per gallon and the best route to Kidderminster when the roadworks are up. Because mastery of detail was, in the industrial age, a sign of status. Transfer that to music and you have a state of play that hasn't changed since the 60s. Do you know this lick? Oh, you do. Well, do you know this one? Oh, you do. But do you have the right equipment to play it on? Do you have the authentic equipment? When the reality is it can't be that authentic. It can't be authentic kit if it's kit that's only just been invented. The stuff debate is about establishing who's in the club and who isn't. Girls screamed at Elvis because he moved them. They sang along because they liked the tune. Boys talked about what made the sound, not necessarily the sound itself. This distinction is why I personally believe that girls are the dominant species. For boys, our glory is in our biology, when we're young and we're strong and we're full of vim and vigour. It's also when we're at our least articulate and our most stupid, and we tend to hold on to it. That's why you see 40 and 50 something year old men wearing the same indie band t-shirt and jeans combo that they wore at university and collecting the vinyl that they played in their youth as they replay their youthful obsessions over and over again. Boys become old. We become old, our strength wanes, we become querulous and wattly and we start dyeing our hair and dating women who are too young for us. In the meantime, girls have grown up, they've become mothers and parents, they've raised children, they've done a job, they've maintained and expanded friendships and social groups and tried new hobbies and interests and are about to sell the house and take a punt on becoming a farmer, a stained glass window maker, skydiving instructor. Girls grow up to learn from life and become articulate and wise. Boys just stay boys. We might have more pocket money. The toys and the obsessions might become more expensive and more obsessive, but it's still boys getting granular about equipment and judging other boys on what they know about the equipment, about the equipment they have and what they can do with it, which is why guitar culture is where it is now. Recycling the licks of the past on the instruments and kit of the past and calling it music. And it's all because of a boy from Newcastle called Brian. Brian Rankin invented the guitar hero and he's from Newcastle. World, you're welcome.